Let's get into our teaching time this morning. Grace and peace to you all. Let me start by telling you a familiar story. You're going to know this one. There's a young girl. She is newly engaged. And she gets a visit from an angel who proclaims to her that she is going to be the mother of the coming Messiah. Her soon-to-be husband is very distressed to find her pregnant. But since the child is from God, he goes ahead with the formal marriage. Then the couple needs to travel 90 miles to another town in the very last days of the girl's miraculous pregnancy. And the husband, named Joseph, puts that girl named Mary on a donkey and they head out through the desert to Bethlehem. And as they arrive, Mary is in labor. And having absolutely nowhere that would take them in, they find a space in a nearby cave, an animal shelter. And she gives birth alone while her husband searches desperately for a midwife who will come and assist. And that baby is placed in a dirty feed trough laying wrapped in strips of cloth on a bed of straw. And snow falls outside, and rain sleets down with the snow. And the baby lies quietly in his improvised cradle, cooing gently, smiling even moments after birth. And cows and sheep come to nuzzle at the infant, and at some point a little boy comes to play his drum. Pum-pum-pum. You all know this story, right? It is a beautiful and moving thing, isn't it? I hate to break it to you, but there's absolutely nothing, almost nothing in there that has anything to do with the actual Christmas story. The story as it's told in Scripture and the historical realities of first century Palestine are very different from what we hear in that story as we tell it each year. In fact, most of what we think of as being the Christmas story comes from a novel that was written about 150 to 200 years after Jesus was born. Okay, well, it was a novel by ancient standards. It was actually about 12 pages long. But, you know, back in the day, they didn't really have much. And it is a rollicking good story. It is an absolutely fantastic story. And if you stick around after the service today for the coffee and conversation time, one of the things we're going to talk about is that story because it's just, it's a lot of fun. And it includes all kinds of fascinating plot twists that you may not have expected from the Christmas story, like how Mary's mother gave birth to Mary, her only child, in her old age through an old, her own miraculous pregnancy. And it also tells how Mary was raised in the temple and fed by angels and not by people. Or it tells about how there's a midwife who comes just after Jesus is born and she sees the baby and she says, Mary, you could not possibly be a virgin. And Mary says, I am. And the midwife checks. And as she checks, it's graphic, but I'm not going to go there. As she checks, suddenly she's stricken with leprosy for having dared question Mary's virginity. At which point, uh, don't worry, the baby Jesus, the infant who's just been born, reaches out his hand and lays it on the midwife and she is instantly healed. There's a movie of the week on Hallmark for you. The midwife at that point is willing to say, yes, Mary is a virgin. It's okay. But you know, the, the thing about this though is that it's all fiction. And no matter how neat some parts of the made-up story are, the real story is so much better. 
It is so much better. But getting to that real story can be tricky. It happened a long time ago. And the Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of details about the birth of Jesus. That's one of the reasons that false stories were able to grow up so much, is, is that there's just not a lot of details. Biographers back in ancient times didn't really include a lot of details about the early lives of their subjects. They figured what were important were the things that those people did when they grew up. The fact that two of Jesus' biographers felt the need to include stories about his birth tells us how amazing they thought those events were, that they thought to include anything. Now, each of these writers told the part of the story that led into his biography the best. Uh, the two guys I'm talking about are Matthew and Luke, and they both have books in the New Testament of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, look one up on your phone, or you can grab one off the cart over there and make sure that you follow along so that you know that I'm telling you what's in here, not just stuff I'm making up. Matthew, when he wrote about Jesus' birth, he, he wrote about the things that helped him recognize that Jesus was this promised Jewish Messiah, this Savior who was supposed to come and deliver his people. For Luke, he wrote about things that showed Jesus to be the Son of Man, who is a God taking on the flesh of human life. That's because Matthew was a religious Jew, Luke was a Greek doctor and a citizen of Rome, and they each told us about the part of the story of the birth of Jesus that interested them the most. Luke's story is laid out in chapter 2 of his book, which is where we are going to spend most of our time today. And if you all flip to that section of your Bible, you'll be able to follow along a little better, and I will not lead you astray, making up stories about midwives and things. Luke 2, verse 1 says, At that time, the Roman emperor, Augustus, decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. Now, Augustus, he liked to count people. He did it a lot. He instituted this tax system in Rome that was based on how many people lived in an area instead of just charging them based on the whims of the Senate. And he ordered a number of these censuses while he was in charge. Um, and there have been historians in the past who suggested otherwise, but archaeological discoveries over the last 30 years have shown this to be absolutely true, that these sort of things happened. Which brings us to verse 2, which says this was the first census taken when Quirinius... There's a good name. Anyone need to name a kid? Name your kid Quirinius. Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, a lot of people have objected to this statement. We know that Jesus was born somewhere between 6 before the Common Era and 4 BCE. We have solid records of Quirinius being the political governor of Syria from 6 to 12 AD, which is... Do the math, somewhere between 10 and 12 years to 18 years later. Now, we know that Quirinius ordered a census in the year 6 or 7 that caused kind of a big stir, and it caused a rebellion, not a very big one, but a small rebellion in Israel that, that made enough noise that it got recorded by historians. But records of times earlier than that are a little sketchy. Apparently, people do not get excited about ta copying tax records. And because they don't make copies of them, they just kind of decay away because they're written on papyrus, and so they kind of rot away. So almost no documents from the Roman imperial days lasted more than a few centuries before they just turned to dust. 
The best that we can do is rely on historians from the first and second centuries who say that they saw those documents and what they tell us about it. And then we can either prove or disprove their reliability based on all the little scraps of archaeological stuff that gets dug up over the years. Now Luke is an interesting guy because he was a two-witness guy. He thinks like a modern newspaper reporter. He needs to have two or more witnesses for everything that he shares in his stories. He provides more verifiable details than any of the other gospel writers. And because he provides so many details, his accuracy has been questioned a number of times over the years. However, at every point that he has been questioned, when evidence gets dug up somewhere that will either confirm or dismiss what he's saying, he has been confirmed to be correct. There's all kinds of things. If you look up, you Google uh, Luke's gospel, you'll find a whole list of things that people say, well, Luke wasn't right about this or wasn't right about that. But when you look into it, you'll see archaeologically, especially over the last 20 or 30 years, evidence has proved him to be accurate. And in the case of Quirinius, it turns out he was the military governor of this region during the time that Luke indicated, and he would have been in charge of any census. Records have also been found that show that there were censuses done in the region during the time that Jesus was born. So, it's safe, in spite of the critics, to say that Luke was a careful and accurate historian, which is why I like what he says so much. But that part is not the exciting part of the story. Let's get to the exciting part of the story. Luke 2, verses 3 and 4, all returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. And he traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. Now i got to tell you, there are a lot of people who say that Romans would never have required such a ridiculous trip. What possible reason could they have to require people to return to the cities where their ancestors lived in order to be counted? None of you knows either? Yeah, actually, those people are right. There's no reason for them to require that. That's ridiculous. It's, it's foolish. The Romans had absolutely no reason to require that whatsoever. But people of Jewish ancestry did. Um, for them, it would have been part of their tribal heritage and a way to keep claim to land that historically belonged to their family. See, in the view of Jewish people at the time, all land belonged to God. And we were just given stewardship over it. We got to take care of it. But it was God's land, not our land. The land belongs to God. People take care of it. All right, rather than spend 20 minutes trying to explain all the details of ancient Near Eastern land ownership practices, because even I don't want to know all that I know about that. It's really not that exciting. Let me just say there are some really complicated rules about Jewish land use. What we need to know is that the land was never really owned by the individual. Instead, it was divided up and it was held by the tribes. And the various families in each tribe maintained their claim to their designated parcels of land by working on that land. And Joseph and Mary both had family lines that stretched all the way back to David, the most famous king of Israel. And even though they apparently didn't hold any land of their own, they still would have had a religious duty to be counted 
among with their own family group in order for the land that the family owned to stay in the family line. Am I making sense? I know I, I, this part's getting a little technical. Essentially, no matter how distant the relationship between Joseph and Mary and the current owners, they still had the obligation to go and be counted there. Imagine like you are 16th in line of succession to be the president. What are the odds you're going to become president if you're 16th in line of succession? Pretty small. But you still need to know that you're in that line so that if something dramatic happened and you were called on, you would know that you were about to be called up to be the president. 16th, by the way, is a Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen. She's number 16 in line if something goes horribly, horribly, horribly wrong. That position would usually be the 18th. See number 18 down at the bottom? She would usually be the 18th in line, but our current attorney general has not been confirmed by Congress yet, so he doesn't count. He would usually be number 7. And the usual number 14 is Transportation Secretary Elaine Chow, but she's not a natural-born citizen, so she can't be president. So she's not in this line of succession. I'm sure you all knew that, though. You are all up on all 18 positions behind the president, right? No. <laughs> but this tells you why Joseph went to Bethlehem. Because even though he's way down the list and it didn't seem like it was ever going to happen, he's in their line of succession. He needed to be counted with his family. Verse 5. He took with him Mary, his fiancée, who was now obviously pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. So they both came in response to this census, out of this duty to be counted among the family of David in the tribe of Judah. And they did not come alone. In the, the movies and all that, you always see Joseph leading Mary on the donkey. That would not have happened. Do you know how I know? It's because they're not married yet. They are engaged, they are betrothed, it is binding, but they are not married yet. They're pledged to be married, but according to the laws and customs of their time and their day, they were not permitted to be alone. They had to have chaperones right up to the point of the consummation of the marriage. And we've got children running around the room, so we won't explain where that point goes, but uh, suffice it to say, they were usually witnesses to the consummation. Privacy is a whole different thing these days. Take note also, well, they were there, the time came for the baby. Not minutes later, not well they were in transit, but well they were there. In fact, the way this is phrased, it suggests at least days and possibly as much as a few months ahead that they would have got to Bethlehem. And that's for a very important reason. Now, ancient peoples may not have had the technology we do. They may not have had the understanding of biology we do. They may not have gone through the same birth process exactly that we do because, you know, we don't have like ultrasounds and all that. But they weren't stupid. They knew that traveling in the late stages of pregnancy put the baby and the mother at risk. Infant mortality is already like 50% back in those days. One out of four births, the mother died too. So they did not do anything stupid. Particularly in Jewish society, procreation and the birth of children was revered. 
risks were not taken without a serious need, and the census just didn't have that kind of urgency behind it. It was the sort of thing that, I mean, it took years to complete, and every region, they would have had weeks or even months to come and register. There was no rush. But we hold fast to this picture of Joseph and Mary bundling a few things together in the last days before her due date, tossing them on the back of a donkey along with the pregnant woman. Pregnant women do not ride donkeys. That's crazy. And then they go on a long, arduous journey to a strange place without having bothered to make any arrangements. That's the story we tell. But that's not right, and it doesn't give them any credit for having a brain between them. They're not going to ride with Mary in labor. They're going to make sure they arrive early enough that neither the baby nor Mary are in jeopardy. And they will have arranged with their extended family who lived in Bethlehem to have a place to stay. And at some point, after they arrived, and before they were to leave for home, the time came for Jesus to be born. And he was born. He was born right there in the house. Not in a barn. I'm sorry. I'm taking all the magic out of the story for you. Now, at this point, some of you who have your Bibles open are looking ahead to verse 7, and you're thinking that I'm wrong. Depending on the translation you have, you might be thinking that I am totally wrong. So we're going to look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, She, Mary, gave birth to her first child, a son, She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. Or, if you use either the King James Version, or if you uh, recently watched the Charlie Brown Christmas special, you might be more familiar with hearing it this way. She brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, right about now, some of you are saying in your heads, because you're too polite just to stand up and yell at me, see, there's no room in the inn. They put him in a manger, score one for the innkeeper and the stable. Not so fast. Let me talk about the word inn and where that comes from. And then we'll examine certain customs of the time that make it unthinkable that the people of Bethlehem would ever put up with what we say they did. Now, I don't think any of you are going to be surprised to find that there are words that can mean more than one thing. For example, the English word bank, it could mean a financial institution. It could mean to turn to one side or the other while moving. It could mean the side of a river, a river bank. It could be a collection of electronics like a phone bank or a computer bank. These are all banks. We run across this kind of syntactic ambiguity. That's the technical term for it, syntactic ambiguity. There will not be a test. Don't worry. This kind of thing happens all the time, though. It, think of this. There's a song lyric. I'm glad I'm a man and so is Lola. What does that mean? Does that mean Lola and I are both happy that I'm a man? Does that mean that Lola is also a man. Does that mean I'm happy that Lola is a man? I don't know. I can't tell you what this means. And not to get too off track, but let me offer one more. 
There was a, a headline I saw the other day. Little hope given brain-damaged man. Syntactic ambiguity. Little hope given brain-damaged man. What does that mean? Does that mean that a brain-damaged man has very little chance of recovery? Or does that mean that a brain-damaged man has been given to a small girl named Hope? Now, if we have trouble figuring this out in English, how much harder do you suppose it would be to translate this sort of thing into another language? There's a word in verse 7 that the translators of the time decided should mean in. It's the word, it's a Greek word, kataluma. And it has a number of different meanings, one of which could be in, but that's not how Luke is using it. When Luke writes about a public lodging place, he uses another word. He uses the word pandakion, which means public lodging place or inn. And when he talks about an inn, he uses that word pandakion. It comes up two other places in the gospel. comes up a lot in Greek writings outside. He never uses the word kataluma to mean that. Anytime that word kataluma gets used in Matthew or in Luke, it refers to the guest room or the upper room of a house. Even today, if you visit older style houses in Bethlehem or elsewhere in the Middle East, you find families who live in houses that don't have interior walls. Um, there is one big main room, and then there's a stair, either inside or out, that leads up to an upper room, which is reserved for guests. It is a special place. Um, in my house, we have a guest room. And the guest room in my house is reserved for junk that we don't know where to put it, but we can't really get rid of it either, for whatever reason. Oh, and also we sometimes like guests to stay there. Sometimes. But Middle Eastern hospitality is way better than mine, fortunately. And back in the day, the social norm was that you shared your upper room with anyone who might have need of it. More on that in just a moment. It is unthinkable that there would be no place to be made for Joseph and Mary. Uh, Dr. Kenneth Bailey, he's a lecturer on New Testament Middle East studies. He says, in the Middle East, historical memories are long. And in such a world, a man like Joseph could have appeared in Bethlehem and told people, I am Joseph, son of Heli, son of Matat, son of Levi. And most homes in town would have just opened up for him immediately. Dr. Bailey goes on to point out that because Joseph was actually in the family of King David, he would have been welcome at any home in that town. Anyone would have let them in. So why no room in the guest quarters? Oh yeah, by the way, there were no inns in Bethlehem in the first century. Not even very many there now. I checked. So why wouldn't they have been given a room in the guest quarters? Why wouldn't they have let them in? Well, the easy answer is that other family members got there first, and other out-of-town guests had filled the space, and it seemed inconvenient to bring a pregnant woman there and have her give birth in the guest room. But whose family members wouldn't move so that a pregnant woman could be more comfortable? Well, there is actually a reason why they might not. It's what we talked about two weeks ago. See, Mary knows that that child in her womb was created by God, not by human activity. And Joseph believed God when he got that message. But to the rest of the world, God made me pregnant doesn't really carry a lot of weight. These two are not completely married at this point. They are engaged. Mary's pregnancy is considered shameful in their society. Whatever child she carries is thought to be a bastard. That was a heavy weight 
in those days. If Joseph claims them or not, doesn't matter. People know something's not right here. They're not married. Hospitality would demand that a place be provided for the family, but it did not require moving other family members out of the honored guest chambers to make room for the shame that Mary and Joseph were bringing with them or the shame that people thought they were bringing with them. Now I need to tell you, this does not get the couple sent to live in a barn. I'm sorry. doesn't do that. Even if the custom had allowed for that sort of thing, which it didn't, the thought of sending a pregnant mother to live in those kind of circumstances would have been considered a horrible, horrible lapse of honor. A horrible lapse. Remember, babies were always a great blessing, even illegitimate ones. To treat them so cruelly as to send them out to live in a barn would have been embarrassing not just for the family who did it, but for the entire village. People would have been ashamed of them and it would have resonated throughout their whole region. Hey, did you hear what the people in Bethlehem did? So that did not happen. One more argument against the idea of the young couple being sent out to a shed or a cave. Mary had relatives nearby who would have taken them in. If it came down to this, just a few miles away in the hill country of Judah... Elizabeth and Zechariah and their new miracle baby John lived. One quick day's travel would have put Mary and Joseph in their house. Bethlehem was pretty much in the center of Judea. Whatever hills Zechariah and Elizabeth lived in, they were just a few short miles from that village. Is everyone still tracking with me? I'm not getting too technical here. Not, all right. So we've got Mary and Joseph about to have a baby. Will they wait to register for the census? They're staying in the home of some extended family members in Bethlehem. This is what's actually happened. And while they were not permitted to stay in the guest chamber, they were probably given space in the family living quarters near the front of the house. Which brings us to the question of the manger. I know you're thinking, oh man, he ruined the innkeeper. He's taken away the barn. i got to tell you, I completely, 100%, wholeheartedly agree that Mary, having given birth with the help of women from the family and any nearby neighbors, took her newborn baby and laid him in a manger. Of course she did. Now, to explain this, I need to tell you a little bit more about the houses and about the way the people in Bethlehem lived at the time. Now, even though it was one big room, the house was really a split level. This is kind of what it looks like on the side view. When you go in the door at the front of the house, you're in uh, almost like a hallway area. And there were steps that led up two or three feet into the rest of the room, the main section of the room. Why was there that kind of division? Well, it's because the lower animals is where families would bring small flocks or favorite animals to, uh, to stay for the night. Why did they do that? Well, two reasons. One, it helped keep them safe. It's hard to steal someone's favorite cow when the person is sleeping in a room near the favorite cow. Uh, Secondly, easy access to the animals for things like milk or whatever they might want for their meal. It also provided a, a great way to collect animal dung because You may or may not realize this, but back in the day, that was a primary source of fuel for the fires. 
So people would collect the animal dung, and if they just stayed in one spot, they dropped it all in one spot, and it dried in one spot, and you could pick it up from one spot. It's a heck of a lot easier than going out collecting. How many of you have had difficulty finding enough dung when you're out collecting? Yeah. Me too. Boy, I looked all day yesterday. I couldn't find any. <laughs> Another... Another reason uh, that they would bring the animals inside is for heat. The body heat put off by uh, a couple of animals in the one end of that room would help fill the whole house with warmth. On a cold night, that could make a big difference. Now, every morning after milking, the animals could be ushered out. And the main room would be swept into the stall area, and the stall area would then be swept out the front door after collecting all of the fuel that they needed. Let me show you a quick top view of this is what you look down into that room. You kind of get a picture of what's going on. See those two circles on the edge of the upper section? It says mangers. That's where the mangers were. Usually they were some kind of hollowed out stones. They would be placed right there or built into the structure right there so that the animals could feed at night. Now one of these would have been cleaned out and lined with clean cloths and that would have served as the cradle that Mary would have laid Jesus in. And she would have made her bed beside it. Now Joseph probably would have been on the other side of the room because remember, they're still just engaged. So our story then comes down to this. Some weeks before the birth, Mary and Joseph arrived in Bethlehem at the house of a cousin of some sort. There they were refused a place in the family's honored guest room because others were already staying there. Could room have been made for them? Possibly. But the unusual circumstances of Mary's pregnancy may have made the family members unwilling to do more than the minimum required to provide for them. However, that minimum did include places in the living room near the animals. Not the most comfortable of surroundings, perhaps, but not really bad either. It's where the family stayed. So when Mary went into labor, the women of the house would have attended to her and the men all would have waited outside. I got to be in the birthing room for both of my uh, babies to be born. I was actually kind of disappointed by that. I uh, would have rather been outside eating a pizza, and then someone could bring me the nice clean baby afterwards. When my son was born, there, there's the nurse who was like the, the catcher. She got the baby, and then she handed me a pair of scissors. She's like, would you like to cut the umbilical cord? I'm like, no, that's what I'm paying you for. I'm apparently not modern enough in my thinking. <laughs> After the birth, the baby would have been cleaned up, the manger besides Mary's bed lined with clean blankets so that this swaddled baby could be laid down. Whether any small children came to play drums or not is still up. I have no idea. Maybe, maybe not. Parumpa pum pum with this new understanding of the story, we can put away any foolish notion of Joseph as a husband who didn't think ahead to meet his pregnant wife's needs. No cold-hearted innkeeper turned on a no-vacancy sign when he saw the couple headed up his walkway. Mary did not deliver the baby on her own in a cave. Did not happen. This is not a story of a tragedy. All of those elements make this story a tragedy. It is not a tragedy. It's a celebration. Jesus was born as a member of the house of David in the royal line in the town known as the city of David. 
He was laid in a manger, but it was a manger in a warm and friendly home, not one in a cold shed out back. Now this might change the nativity scenes that we're used to seeing. But I think the truth here gives us a better picture of the world that Jesus was entering into. He was the creator of the world entering life as a human being, faced with the same kinds of challenges and rewards that every one of us faced as a baby. I don't know about you, but I find something very comforting about the idea that my God, my Savior, really knows what it's like to be me. Really knows what it's like to be you. He got to experience life firsthand. Not just through observation or through other witnesses. He was there for the whole thing. He came, he lived it out himself. Can you imagine what it must be like for a being who creates universes to need to allow someone else to change his dirty diaper? For someone who's all-powerful to need to cry and wait for someone to feed them. In uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-8, through eight, the Apostle Paul discusses this idea. He uses really dramatic language. He starts with this command. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though He was God, He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, He gave up His divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Perhaps we should even go further than saying that he humbled himself in death. We should maybe say he humbled himself by becoming obedient to life. Even life as a human infant. Anyone here want to go back to being a baby? (laughs) Yes, please. You're forgetting how much they cry. As we draw closer to Christmas and we celebrate the birth of Jesus, I think we need to keep this idea of the Son of God being fully human in every respect close to our minds. Because that's what Christmas celebrates. God coming and putting skin on. God living as a human being. This was no show. It was perhaps the greatest miracle that ever happened. God becoming man. It was done in the quietest of ways, in the smallest of places. And knowing where and how he started and all that he had going for him and how much he had to struggle with right from the beginning and what he became out of that. That makes Jesus someone that I want to follow. Someone who's willing to do that for me. That's someone I want to follow. Alright, this is not a study that lends itself naturally to an altar call, but I'm going to offer one here anyway. For God so loved the world. That means that He loves me and He loves you. He chooses to care about me. He chooses to care about you. That He gave His one and only Son. He loves you and me so much He was willing to be born in questionable circumstances into a family that regarded Him with a mixture of hostility and hospitality. How many of us live 
in conflicted families. That whosoever believes God loves us so much that He was willing to become like us so that we could know that He really understands. He knows what it's like to be cold. He knows what it's like to be hot. He knows what it's like to be fed and He knows what it's like to be hungry. Whosoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. He loves us so much He was willing to become human with all that entails so that we can learn to trust Him and follow Him into the life He created us to live from the beginning. That's when Scripture talks about eternal life. That's what it's talking about. It's talking about living the life God created you to live. It's not this just this live forever idea that we seem to attach to it. It doesn't start after you die. It starts the moment you accept Jesus. So I'm going to live the way God created me to live. With all the joys, all the challenges, all the blessings. I'm going to feel the pains. I'm going to love the people. If you need to claim that life that He's offering, this is a great time to do it. These places of prayer are always open. Look, no lines. No waiting. You can come and pray. You present yourself to the Lord who is God. The Lord who was born so that He could live and die for us. So that we can live for Him. Now, while we're reflecting on this, I'm going to play some music. And you can come and pray as you will.